When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Hello, dress listeners, and welcome to this week's Fashion History Now. On Tuesday, we did part one of our Barbie episode. You're just going to have to forgive us for taking a little bit of a break from that, but it will be it's back a on huge t- topic. It's a huge topic. <laughs> yeah. As you already know, if you've listened to part one. Yeah. I needed just a little bit more time. So please forgive me, but it will be airing on Tuesday. Um, so we're just coming at you with a little bit of a fashion history now this week, starting with some listener mail, which we haven't done in a while, April. Um. Mm-hmm. But we always hear from you all. You send us direct messages. You send us emails. Um, We do our very best to get back to all of you in a timely fashion. And I wanted to just highlight a couple that were in response to our recent How to Shop for Vintage episode. The first is from Mickey from, she says, hello from South Australia. Just wanted to share that as you were talking about thrifting and savers. I was literally embroidering a neon embellishment on a vintage jumper jacket I had purchased, just purchased from savers. Also a thrifting trick I I just picked up is to get an electric fabric shaver. It gets rid of all the pilling on old vintage knitwear and it makes it look new again. Thanks for the fabulous history lessons and cheers to slow fashion. And yes, Aww. that is fantastic advice. Thank you. That sometimes you do have to kind of repair or work with your vintage or thrifted mm-hmm. clothing um, to make it either upcycle it or to make it good as new. And those those electric fabric shavers are really, really awesome. And then also we got another message from Sandy who had um, some good advice as well. She says that I love your podcast and the one on vintage clothes shopping is great. I want to say that since the 1950s, not only have sizes changed, undergarments have too. 
And dresses were often sides for women wearing heavy girdles underneath. She, she talks about how she remembers from the 1970s that her mother, grandmother, and teachers all wore these girdles. And so she said, so it's important to try on vintage clothes. Thank you. And thank you, Sandy, because that is actually something we didn't mention was that you should absolutely, if you can, although my savers no longer lets you try on clothes, try on clothing because, you know, there's also like the pointer bra silhouette, right? Things are kind of shaped, mm -hmm. clothing's kind of shaped to go over certain silhouettes of the period. And uh, April had also mentioned in that vintage clothing episode to always bring a tape measure with you, which is excellent advice, period, for shopping in general to measure your clothing because vintage clothing does not necessarily have as much stretch as today. Nope, nope, nope. And I just throw, like I said then, and I'm going to say it again now, I just throw sizing completely out the window and it's more about if it fits and not looking at the size. So yes. Um, and that is just a tip of the iceberg in terms of the listener mail that we have been receiving lately. Thank you guys. Um, we've been getting quite a lot lately, so much so that we have decided in a couple of weeks, we're going to do an entire mini-sode just of listener mail, answering some of your guys' questions if we haven't been able to get to them. So we're mentioning this now, because if you have any burning fashion history mysteries that you just need answered, now is your time to get them in to us. And you can send them to us via DM on Instagram. That is at dress underscore podcast, or you can also send them to our new email, which is of course, hello at dressedhistory.com. So send us your listener mail. You might end up on the show. <laughs> yeah. And especially actually, if you have any Barbie history stories you want to share with us, right? If you have any of your personal Barbie memories or anything that relates to any of the topics we've discussed recently, please reach out to us and let us know. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of topics that we have discussed in the past, Cass, I would like to tell you a little bit about an update that relates to a past episode, if I might. Ooh. Okay. Cool. So in 2019, we did, or you did, you produced this episode with Joy Bivens on the Ebony Fashion Fair. And the Ebony Fashion Fair was, of course, a project of the Johnson Publishing Company, which, among other things, and perhaps most notably produced, uh, published Ebony and Jet magazines. Okay. Well, I think we mentioned maybe in the past that the company unfortunately filed for bankruptcy around that same time in 2019. And working in the role as like a fashion curator and archivist, there was a lot of chatter in my world where that archive was going to end up. Everybody wanted to make sure that it was preserved because the archive is this incredibly rich, you know, historical record of black life dating all the way back to the 1940s. The archive contains more than 200 boxes of business records, copies of all the magazines. There's 10,000 audio video recordings and wow. 4.5 million negatives and prints. Some of these images have never been published. So just a little update on what happened, what ended up happening to the Johnson Publishing Archive and what is currently happening and what is happening in the future here, because this pertains to all of us who do fashion history research, as well as, you know, any kind of research, really. So a consortium of five institutions ultimately came together to purchase the archive. Part of it was the J. Paul Getty Trust. Part of it was the Smithsonian. And J. Paul Getty Trust pledged $30 million to support digitization efforts. The physical records are now going to be um, in the possession of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. So that's where the physical records will reside. But, um, and this is this article that I read, um, uh, maybe it was like a month ago now, uh, basically the Getty Research Institute 
and the Smithsonian are consulting with Vicki Wilson, who was Johnson Publishing's archival specialist for 20 years. They're all working together. Um, and there's this huge, massive effort of processing and digitizing the Johnson Publishing archive. Wow. Um, this is, and I'm not saying that every single piece of material is ultimately going to be digitized. Sometimes things, you know, are business records that are private or, or, you know, have legal things um, attached to them. So you can't make that sort of information public, but basically what's happening right now, um, starting this fall, uh, the processing and the digitization efforts are going to start friends. This takes time. Let me tell you in my role, <laughs> At FIT, people are always like, oh, everything you have in the collection is digitized, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have 12,000 rare books, 800 rare magazine titles, and like an estimated half a million works on paper. Like that, there's just no way that we can have all that digitized. So it takes time to actually do the digitization, but also to control it intellectually with metadata. Um, and that's producing like all of the content, like who was the photographer, perhaps if they know who are the models, what is, what is the date? Like, where was it located? All of this recording, all this information that is so important for researchers takes a ton of time, but I just want to let you all know that ultimately this is going to be all available public online. Um, and they're not going to wait until every single thing is done. They're going to issue it out in batches. So um, probably within the next year or so, we might start to see little, little, little trinklings in of the Johnson Publishing Archive online in its little database platform. And that is going to um, take place in little batches moving on from the next five years or so. So this is very that exciting. Is very exciting. Mm -hmm. And I will say, and you've heard us mention on the show, Dress listeners, that the Ebony magazine and I believe Jet magazine are available on Google Books and they're keyword mm -hmm. searchable. Such a fountain of fashion history. I mean, so, so much fashion history in there. It's so fun to go in there um, and look through them, even just like browse them or if you're looking for something specific. So you can do that right now while you wait for this mm -hmm. massive digitization effort. I do have a question for you mm -hmm. because as you mentioned, Ebony Fashion Fair and as we learned from that episode with Joy, which if you haven't heard it, listeners, check it out because Ebony Fashion Fair went, went on for decades and decades. It was the brainchild of Eunice Johnson, one of the founders of Ebony Magazine. And she went to Europe and was a prized client of Yves Saint Laurent and like all Angaro, all of the big haute couturiers. And she would collect these pieces, purchase them and then bring them back. And they were shown in these fashion shows across the United States. And I think at one point, even internationally, I mean, it was a huge undertaking, but she amassed this huge archive of haute couture clothing. And I'm mm -hmm. curious if you know, is the Smithsonian also getting that haute couture clothing? I don't know where it is. Yeah, I'm not sure. So the few articles that I've read about this haven't said anything at all. They didn't even mention the fashion fair. It was more like the archival records. Right, right, right. That that they were speaking about. So um, maybe some of our listeners know where some of the Ebony Fashion Fair pieces ended up. Yes. And now that I'm thinking about it, Joy might have actually even spoken to that in the episode we did. Um, the exhibition was at the Chicago History Museum. So we mm -hmm. do know some people there. Um, so I can do a little bit more digging, but I would be very curious. Either way, this is going to be such a huge contribution to fashion history in so many ways. One little tidbit too, and this is a little bit of a temporal tidbit. Starting this month, uh, the Getty Research Institute and the Smithsonian are also beginning to organize workshops and doing outreach with HBCU students, um, informing them about the professions of archives and also 
photo conservation. So um, those are going to be starting as early as this month and moving forward. So stay tuned for that if you are an HBCU student. I actually have another update or an update on another past dressed episode, April. Oh, well, um, so and- we did not plan this. No, we did not. And you, of course, remember, and our listeners may remember our interview from 2021 with Christy McLeod, who is the visionary artist behind the Red Dress Project, which is an award-winning global collaboration empowering women from around the world to tell their stories through embroidery, all on this single giant skirted red silk dress. And at the time of the interviews, this was like three years ago, there were 202 embroiderers from 28 countries who had contributed to the dress over 11 years. It's an Mm -hmm. incredible ongoing project. And actually three weeks ago, Kirstie announced that after 14 years and three months, the red dress April is now complete. Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Yes. So it has now been embroidered by 380 individuals from 51 countries around the world. And she tells us, quote, over 60% of the embroidery has been created by vulnerable women living as refugees, survivors of war and abuse or living in extreme poverty, all who shared, you know, their stories and pieces of themselves in this incredible project. And she shared this on her Instagram, which is at the red dress underscore embroidery. And she says, quote, it's hard to believe, but my, what my little project had become and the multitude of rich, diverse and humbling experiences, connections and interactions that the red dress and I have been blessed with over the years, because she traveled with this dress all over Mm -hmm. the world. And she says she looks forward to many more years of exhibitions and events because now it can be exhibited in its entirety. And she's looking forward to continue to share the stories of the remarkable embroiderers. And apparently there is a book and documentary coming, which is very exciting. And so needless to say, this was a massive undertaking. And though the dress is now complete, its journey is far from over. You can stay up to date on the release of the book and documentary by following along on her Instagram, which I just mentioned, the red dress underscore embroidery, as well as her website, reddressembroidery.com. And you can also, she actually just did a four chapter audio experience called Changing Threads, the Red Dress Story. And that describes the evolution of the Red Dress Project over more than a decade and includes voices of some of those participating embroiderers. So you can listen to that on SoundCloud or via the Red Dress website. And then actually this audio companion was produced and supported by three venues of the touring Red Dress exhibition in the United States dress listeners. So the dress might be coming or currently at an exhibition near space near you. So if you are near the Southern Vermont Arts Center, the dress is on view there until September 24th. And then I believe it's going to be heading to the Frick, Pittsburgh and Fuller Craft, Massachusetts. So if you're lucky enough to be in or around those venues and can go check out the red dress in person, please do and report back to us what it's like to actually see that incredible dress in person. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and 
think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. So you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, I have a bit of reportage, which we did not cover in our Paris Fashion History Recaps. Because... This reportage is actually not about our tour. It's a little bit about what I did after everyone left. May I? <laughs> you may. And actually, I think even when we finished recording our Paris recaps, I'm like, oh my God, April, you didn't talk about this amazing experience that you had. Very fashion history related and very much related to what we did on our trip, but not with our trip. So please, yes, tell us about your experience because you actually haven't even told me about it. Uh, yes. So apparently because I can't get enough fashion history after everyone left, I had always wanted to go to Musée Christian Dior. So just a little bit about Musée Christian Dior and the reason why we didn't do it on our trip. It is different from Galerie Dior, which is the big fashion museum that is located in Paris, all about Dior. This is actually a museum in Granville in Normandy, which was Dior's hometown. He was born in Granville in 1905. He actually lived there with his family on a full-time basis until he was age five. Um, and then at that point, the family moved to Paris, but they kept Le Room, which is the, the the name of the home, as their country home until it was sold in 1932. And the reason why it was sold in 1932, and this is the site I should go back and say of the Musée Christian Dior, it's in his childhood home and the family's country house today. So the reason why Le Brun was uh, sold in 1932 was, of course, the financial crisis of the late 20s and the early 1930s. And also because sadly, his mother, Madeline, had died the year before in 1931. So his father was looking to sell the home. So he had been born um, in Granville and basically spent his entire youth there. The home uh, and the museum is and the estate surrounding it is actually now owned by the city of Granville. And they've owned it since 1938. And at that time, they made the gardens open to the public. So we have to talk about the gardens, Cass. As you know, Dior himself has said that he was incredibly inspired in his fashion designs by his mother's gardens, the flowers, particularly the roses. And oh, yeah. the gardens at Le Room hold more than 100 different kinds of roses. Wow. And it smells amazing there. Even before I stepped inside the museum, um, or the family's former home. I just, I took in the gardens first, honestly, because it was such just this completely magical set setting. 
And if anybody is curious about this term that I've said now, the title of the home, the room, this is actually kind of an old fashioned sailing term. I had to look into this. I had no idea what this term meant because it kept, they kept referring to it as a wind rose, a wind rose. And I'm like, I don't get it. I don't understand. So apparently when you're learning to sail, there's this thing called wind charts and in the chart itself, it almost looks like a compass, right? right? And so there's 32 different partitions from which direction the wind can blow. And so this little chart ultimately ends up graphically looking like a rose. And there is this motif of one of these wind charts in the form of a mosaic in the entryway of the family home. Wow. And that is actually how it got its name. So it's a little bit of like this double entendre, like, you know, it's the sailing chart. It's the rose. It was like the motif of kind of like the the family hobby, but also the house is really set just on the edge of a cliff Mm -hmm. going directly down the, the beach to one of those gorgeous Normandy beaches. So I felt like even just exploring the gardens, not even going into the home itself, I understood yours so much more just by seeing the setting and what she grew up. It is very, very much stays with you. Yeah. Yeah. The seaside town, right? And the seagulls are screaming everywhere. And the smell in the garden is of the sea because it's just right there over the edge of the cliff, which you can't always quite see. But then, you know, like there's this path when you can wander around directly to the beach. So like- He was growing up, you know, in this garden, but also at the beach at the same time. It's a very magical landscape, that that part of Normandy. So I also, while I was there at the museum, learned a ton about the history of the Dior family in Normandy. Um, Because long before Christian was born, they were very prominent industrialists for many generations. The family was doing quite well, manufacturing fertilizer in Mm -hmm. one case, also bleach, charcoal. And the most uh, quirky thing and the thing that like gave me the most glee, I guess, when I was at at the museum were um, one member of the Dior family also manufactured soda drinks. So like s- soft drinks and they had the little cans <laughs> and it's like Dior, like soft drinks. Like, wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 And what was period was that? Cool. Early 20th century or 19th century? It was a little bit of both, actually. So I don't think this is just one member of the Dior family that was doing all of these things. It was like successive generations. So the Dior name in Normandy was already quite well known before Christian made an appearance into this world. It's funny, too, because we always just associate Dior with Christian Dior, but obviously there are other Dior's throughout history. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's interesting to see, like, of course, there's going to be Dior on different uh, products throughout time, but it's just Mm -hmm. interesting to consider that. Yeah. So um, the museum itself is is not nearly as grand as as the Galerie Dior in Paris. Obviously, um, the museum is actually run by the city of Granville is not necessarily associated um, with Dior, the company as an ad is as it is incarnated today. And so what they've done is they've set up little exhibition spaces within the home. They are small. They are very quaint because, you know, we don't have that big, expansive, you know, fashion exhibition gallery space, Um, but you can go into his sister's rooms. You can go into his room. You can go into his parents' room and they all have like these different little, little fashion exhibition vignettes set up throughout the museum. And there is a charming little kind of like cafe out back. It's small. They do do brunch. Just saying, if you happen to be there 
on the weekend, um, you can set yourself up for brunch. And yeah, it was, it was really lovely. And just to put the cherry on top of this delicious cake, of course, I stayed at Christian Dior's grandparents' home for the night. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> um, so in Brownville, there's this really cute little boutique hotel called About Duquet. And it is located right across from the Granville train station. And it is actually in his grandparents' former home. So it is exactly what you need. It is not the fanciest hotel in the world. It is quite chic, however, um, simple, I would say. Lovely and not expensive. So um, if you want to follow in Dior's steps times two, about (laughs) decay. is the name of the hotel. <laughs> I yeah. really enjoyed Granville, I have to say. Oh, I, I want to go there so bad. And speaking of following in Dura's footsteps, that of course makes me think of Justine Picardy, who is a historian author um, who came on our show to do a two-part interview, not on Dior himself, but on his incredible sister, Catherine mm-hmm. uh, Dior, who was a World War II resistance fighter. If you, um, who was captured part of the resistance and was captured by the Nazis and spent a year in a concentration camp. And after the war came back and became a rose purveyor, again, inspired by her mother. And she's actually the inspiration behind Dior's Miss Dior dress. And so just- And perfume. Yes. And perfume him Dior and his sister Catherine were very very close and to write the book Justine actually spent a lot of time at this at the Dior Museum at Granville kind of retracing Catherine and and Christian's childhood uh, and where they came from and so if you have not listened to that episode definitely definitely check it out and something else that you did that was really cool April that I'm dying to do is you went to Saint-Michel can you tell us a little bit about that I did. So when I was figuring out this Granville trip, I was also dreaming up like what other things in France have I always wanted to do? Um, And at that point, I wasn't even entirely fully aware of the fact that Mont Saint-Michel is only like a 30 or 40 minute train ride from Granville. It's also in Normandy. So um, if you don't know what Mont Saint-Michel is, you might already actually know if you have seen those images of this UNESCO World Heritage Site that is basically this cathedral slash fortress town that is built on a tidal island. So um, when the tides come in, it looks like this uh, castle, essentially, that's in the middle of the sea, surrounded by water. Um, But then when the tides go out, um, they recede and there's like sand all around it and and you can walk out there. So this is called Mont Saint-Michel. The oldest part of this structure um, that still is on existence on the tidal island is now celebrating its thousandth anniversary this year. Wow, which is pretty amazing. Um, but the uh, site itself was designated as a religious site even earlier than that. Um, in 1708, it was established as a sanctuary dedicated to the archangel Michael, and um, Christian pilgrims have been traveling to this tidal island um, to pray since the 8th century. Um, And then it was Benedictine monks that formed an abbey on the site in 966, and then successive um, campaigns of building again and again and again have basically created this uh, Gothic cathedral that is at the top of of this tidal island and it has like this town below wandering all the way up and I have to say like it feels like when you get there that you are in Disneyland um in terms of like being a medieval castle except it's real 
Like, <laughs> like we're so, we're so used to the inverse, right? Like yes. the, the fake reproduction of a medieval castle. This is the real thing, friends. Um, yeah. And I'm just going to say, if you don't know what she's talking about or what we're talking about, just Google it immediately because mm-hmm. you are going to like gasp out loud because it does not look like it should be real. Yeah. Yeah. It's real. I was there. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you actually, actually reminded me too, that in the Loire Valley, the, the castle that the Disney castle is based on is in the Loire Valley in France. So uh, do yourself a favor, dress listeners. If you're planning a trip to Paris, get outside of Paris, do a Loire Castle tour, or take the train up to Normandy, uh, Granville, uh, Saint Michel, and check out all these amazing, amazing places. You will yes. not be disappointed. I have one pro tip to visit Mont Saint Michel, and that is to go in the morning. Um, and that is because the trains from Paris arrive in the early afternoon, and then it becomes so crowded (laughs) yeah it actually becomes disneyland at that point it like it's like you know cinderella is going to turn into a pumpkin at midnight well mont saint michel turns into disneyland at around 12 p.m so (laughs) um go in the morning so you might have to plan to spend the night in that area um Mm -hmm. the night before there's some really lovely little boutique hotels and stuff um and this landscape that surrounds mont saint michel when you see it in the morning it's absolutely surreal because if you're there in the morning the tides will be in and then you can watch them go out and then a little bit later in the day you can go out and walk around in the sand sandy bay area you can do guided tours out there and you probably should have a guide with you because there is actually quicksand it's not entirely safe out there so kind of follow in the footsteps of where people have been but maybe i'll post a little a little uh, 360 video that i took while i was there on our stories please do promote this episode so yeah go in the morning go in the morning. Okay. Well, I think that almost does it. I did want to mention something that I had completely forgot in our Paris recap. And that is when we were talking about Shakespeare and company, which is that really famous bookstore where we had a Mm -hmm. lovely uh, evening with Rebecca talking about textile history. Shakespeare and company actually created a book bundle specifically for dress podcast. Um, So it's very fashion history oriented. And if you would like to access that dress listeners, you can do so through the link in our show. Show notes. So definitely check that out if you're interested in getting your kind of your own little special spice of Shakespeare and company. And it comes in like a little a special bag and it's like a, a little special guest. Yes. Right. Yes. And oh, I do dressed, know, not guest. <laughs> <laughs> and I do know Rebecca mentioned that they, they were, I think their little bags that it will come in are taking a little bit longer. So your order might take a little bit longer to get, but it will be incredibly special and created just for our listeners. So mm-hmm. please check that out. And then April, I also, I think I shared this with you, but I wanted to share it with our listeners because I've been post, I posted a reel about the exhibition 1990 seven fashion big bang that we of course talked about in our recap episode so in the paris recap episode dress listeners i talked about coming face to face with the christian lacroix gown that inspired me to be a fashion historian on the cover of course of valerie Steele's book the corset a cultural history and so I posted it recently. I did a reel for the about the exhibition and about um, how wonderful it was and about this dress. And guess who responded to my reel, April? <laughs> oh, I know who it is, but why don't you tell our <laughs> listeners? Talk about Chris- some listener mail. <laughs> yes, Krista Lacroix responded to me. And I mean, what an incredible highlight. I mean, granted, he 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 sent me about 16 emojis. 
Um, <laughs> but I understood what he was saying. Um, and that was just such an incredible highlight. Um, you know, Christian Lacroix is a very much alive and well designer. He actually doesn't do fashion anymore. He does opera. Mm -hmm. And there's actually an exhibition up at the SCAD Museum in Atlanta on his costume design. So if you want to see some of his more contemporary work, you can check that out. But what a special experience um, in more ways than one. And we hope that you will follow in our footsteps, trust listeners, if you go to Paris and take some of our advice and have a wonderful, wonderful trip. Yes, I think that does it for us today, Cass. Yes, do you have anything else you want to add? No, I do not. All right. Well, may you all consider what fashion history is happening in your wardrobe now, next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you and keep that listener mail coming in, right? Because we're going to do a listener mail episode coming soon. So you can, of course, email us at hello at dressedhistory.com or DM us on Instagram, which is at dressed underscore podcast. And don't forget, dress listeners, to tune in to part two of our Barbie fashion history episode on Tuesday of next week. Have a lovely rest of your weekend. Bye. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media.